Well, we are looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 10. Before we get there, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the study of His Word. God, our Heavenly Father, Your Word speaks to us from You. That when, when the Word speaks, You speak to us. Father, we pray that, that Your Word would enable us to hear and to obey. That we would have hearts that are open to receive Your Word as the gift to us that it is. And that we would be eager to put what we learn into practice And that by your Holy Spirit, we would not simply be better informed sinners, but that we would be progressively transformed saints. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, and before you get there, there's something you need to know if you're going to understand what's happening in chapter 10. Uh, as you look at the structure of Hebrews, what you see essentially is that it's like a stepped pyramid. If you've ever been to been uh, someplace where you've seen photos of that, or you've uh, maybe some you've, some of you've been lucky enough to actually go to South America where they have some of those stepped pyramids that and you have uh, one layer built on another, and then you rise up another level, and it goes up, and you keep going up and up and up to the pinnacle. And essentially, the structure of Hebrews is very much like that, where he, he will lay out a truth, and then he will build on it, and you'll step up another level, and then he'll lay out another truth, and then he'll build on it, and then you go up another level, all the way exalting Christ uh, as the pinnacle of our salvation, as the greatest thing that God could possibly do for us. And... As the author makes his points, what he does is he first makes an effort to prove that what he's saying about Jesus is true from the Old Testament Scriptures, and then he steps up and he proceeds to draw out all of the implications of that truth for believers today. And each layer of teaching builds on the one before to present a complete picture of Jesus and all of His glorious accomplishments for us through His death and resurrection. And I bring all of that up because Hebrews chapter 9 is all about how Jesus in His death on the cross fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system, especially as it relates to uh, the Passover and the Day of Atonement, and that by His death He established a new covenant for us. And chapter 10 builds on that teaching to help us understand how Jesus' sacrifice as our new covenant priest makes us holy in a way that the old covenant could not. And I want to show that to you. And so if you've got your Bible, I want to look first at uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. We'll get all the way to verse 18 today. But let me read verses 1 to 10, first of all. For since the law has but, a sh- has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would they not have ceased being offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, where it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, if you look closely at the first four verses of this chapter, you'll see there is a, the author is underlining the need for Jesus' sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice was necessary, according to those four verses, for three reasons. Number one, it was necessary because a a copy and a shadow of the good things that we actually possess in Christ uh, is insufficient to achieve holiness. That things that are merely an imitation can't actually produce what the sacrifice of Christ has produced for us. Even though those sacrifices were offered over and over and over and over again, they never actually made anybody holy. How do we know that? Because if they worked to actually grant people cleansing from sin, they would not have needed to be repeated. So the very fact that they were repeated day by day, week by week, month by month, season by season, year by year, for literally 1,500 years, through the tenure of 83 high priests, tells us that they didn't actually work. They were still being offered, in fact, as Hebrews was written. If they worked, people would have got cleansed. After they got cleansed, they don't need additional sacrifice. Amen? After, and by the way, after you've had a bath, you don't need another, another one right after that, right? You get out of the shower and get dressed. It's the same thing. If this actually could cleanse you, if it actually could make you clean on the inside to cleanse your conscience, they would have stopped. But since they couldn't cleanse you, they needed to be repeated over and over and over. And he gives us a second reason. He says that Jesus' sacrifice was necessary because it didn't clear your conscience of sin. In fact, just the opposite is what it did. 
It, didn't, it not only didn't cleanse your conscience of sin, it reminded you of the fact that you were a sinner. It reminded you every year as you went to go confess before the priest all of your sin. What a scoundrel and a scallywag you are, right? And you had to confess and offer sacrifice for yourself. And every time you went, you were reminded. Because it didn't actually remove sin from you. And it was also necessary because, according to verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why can't that work? Because an animal is an insufficient substitute for the sins of a human being. You know, animals have a variety of degrees of intelligence, Right? You've got some animals, you know, chimpanzees, super intelligent. My dog, not so much. Right? Um, you know, you've got all kinds of different levels of critter that are out there. You know, cows are dumb as a sack of hair, you know? <laughs> they are, okay? They, you know, you've got, you've got goats that are a little more clever, but you know what? None of them are like, none of them are like a human being. There is a radical distinction in the creation account and in the reality we observe between a man and a woman who are together made in the image of God and whatever animal you want to put as a substitute. And whatever an animal might do is just a substitute. And in fact, a human being had to be the sacrifice because only a human being can pay for the sins of men and women. Animals can't do that. And so a human had to be the sacrifice. But the problem is you had to have a perfect sacrifice. And human beings are all sinners. So you got a problem. Where are you going to get a perfect human being? The only way is for God Himself to become incarnate, to take on flesh, to become, to take on a human nature, to live a human life, and to die as a human on the cross. It wasn't that the animal sacrifices were bad, they were just insufficient because they could only point forward to Jesus Christ, the one sacrifice that does make people holy. They are the shadow, and He is the reality. And to prove His point, the author of Hebrews points again back to the Old Testament. Now look at verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. He quotes there uh, Psalm chapter 40, uh, verses 6 to 8, to the effect that God was not all that impressed by sacrifices in and of themselves. Uh, you know, the right sacrifices offered in the right way with the wrong heart was totally unacceptable to God. In fact, over and over again in the Old Testament prophets, God tells them, I've rejected your sacrifice because you don't want to honor me. You just want to check off a box, essentially. Say, well, I met my obligation before God. 
the Lord is not that impressed by sacrifices. What he desires most is not an animal sacrifice so much as it is obedience to him of the sort that becomes a sacrifice of ourselves. Now there's obviously a limitation on that, isn't there? King David um, and, and us too, we don't do real well on our own offering ourselves up as a sacrifice to God because we're not that obedient. Amen? I mean, anybody read their King David history? Uh, great man of God on, uh, on his best days, on his worst days, worse than you. All right? And, and so we don't do real well offering ourselves up as a sacrifice of obedience to God. But Jesus did it perfectly. And so the author of Hebrews is arguing here. He's applying what King David said about himself to what to, he says, look, you need to look beyond David to the one who is the son of David, who ultimately fulfilled what David was talking about. That sacrifice wasn't the, uh, of the animal was not the thing that we, he ultimately wanted. What he wanted was to be honored with our life and with our heart. And there was only one person in all human history who did that perfectly, and that was Jesus. Jesus is the one who really did come to do God's will in a body. You remember how he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember? Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the one who was obedient to God all the way to the death. Though it cost him his life to obey God, he was obedient to God all the way to the death. And in that way, he becomes our perfect substitute and sacrifice. Look at verse 10 now. What's it saying? What it's saying here is this, verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What it's saying is this, is that because Jesus perfectly obeyed God's will for us on our behalf all the way to death, so we have been made holy in Christ's death. That Jesus obeyed God's will on our behalf, and so we get holiness from Him. That He is our substitute. It's kind of like this. Suppose I told one of my kids to do the dishes. But he, and I'll use that pronoun advisedly, uh, didn't do a great job of carrying out the task. What dishes made it to the dishwasher were still caked with two-day-old dried chili. And most of the rest were still in the sink, covered in food bits in various stages of decomp. Right? You laugh because it's like that at your house, too. All right. Now, suppose... That dear Karen got in there and cleaned up the mess. She got out the Scotch-Brite pads and scrubbed all that stuff off and 
put it to right, right? And I come home and I find the dishes done perfectly. Did my kid offer acceptable obedience? No. But where he fell short, a substitute came in to, and rescued him out of his mess and offered holiness on his behalf. Amen? And in the same way, that's what Jesus has done to, for us in, to a much greater extent. We are the kid with two-day-old chili dried on our stuff. All right? And our, and our sacrifice is not acceptable as it stands before God. But one came in who dealt with our mess and cleaned us up and made us by His holiness acceptable in God's sight. Amen. That's what it's talking about. That Jesus is the one who came and did God's will for us. And He achieves cleanliness for us in a much greater level than the cleansing of the dishes. He cleanses our souls. Through Christ we have, we have been made holy. Look at this. We have been sanctified. Now, I don't normally do this but I want to underline this for you. Uh, I'm going to use a little Greek, Greek grammar here for you, okay? That, that word that's translated, have been sanctified, in Greek is what they call the perfect tense. And what that means is this completed action in the past. In other words, this has already happened to us. Not is going to happen to us at some point in the future. This is something that Christ has already accomplished for you and me. So in other words, um, we already possess holiness through the sacrifice of Christ. The, the theological term for that is this. It's a crossword puzzle word, so just hang in here, okay? It's positional sanctification. That you as a believer in Jesus Christ have a position already in the sight of God of being a saint in His sight. That you have been made holy. Not on the basis of your righteousness, because based on your righteousness, you're going to hell on a rocket ship and so am I. All right, But based on the righteousness of Christ, we have been made holy. So that there's a sense in which we already possess the holiness of Christ. Now it's also a process, and we'll get to that in a second. But there's a sense, and it is real, in which we have been, past tense, made holy by the righteousness of Christ. And that's exciting. Our experience hasn't quite caught up with that yet, but Christ has already secured holiness for us through His once and for all sacrifice. How do we know that's true? You've got to look at the rest of the text with me. All right? 
verses we've been looking at so far have given us one piece of evidence that Jesus' obedience to God's will was predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus' life and death. But there are two more pieces of evidence that he's going to give us in verses 11 to 18. So let's read those together. And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, I've mentioned this before, but... uh, but I want to make a big deal out of this because Hebrews makes a big deal out of this. And it's the second piece of evidence that we have received holiness from God through the sacrifice of Christ. It is the seated Savior. The seated Savior. And there's a huge contrast in these verses and elsewhere in in Hebrews as a book between the actions of the Levitical priests as they stand every day offering sacrifices. And they literally, on certain days of the year, on the high sacrifice days like Passover and the Day of Atonement, And these festival days, they would literally dig trenches from the temple down into the Kidron Valley just to dispose of all of the blood. And they stood and they did this year after year and day after day. And they were offering sacrifice that according to Hebrews here, can never take away sin. And remember, as we went through the discretion on the, the construction of the tabernacle, how you get all of this discussion of furniture. And unless you're an interior designer or an artist, it might have been boring to you. But here's one thing that is missing. Chairs. There are not any. There's tables. There's food to eat. There are plates to eat it off of. But there are no chairs. And the reason is that a priest can never sit because his work is never done. But we look to and worship and have been made holy by a better priest. One who, after he offered the sacrifice of himself, sat down because his work is done his work has been finished in jesus christ he has finished 
God has finished his work of making us holy and an offering cleansing of sin. And so Jesus sits at God's right hand and he is sitting there waiting for the day that is still to come when all who have rejected his rule over their life will be subjected to him and he will become the conquering king over all of creation. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is waiting there for that day to come. When will that happen? Well, initially it will come at the end of the great tribulation described in Revelation 4 through 19 when Jesus returns to set up his millennial reign on this earth from this city of Jerusalem that we now see where he will rule over the entire planet. And then at the conclusion of his millennial reign, there will be the, the final judgment over all of creation and over all the wicked, unbelieving dead, and a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness will be established, and he will rule and reign from a new Jerusalem, and we will rule and reign with him there. And everyone who has rebelled against him, from Satan himself to the average unbelieving person who is dead, will be shut out from that place into the outer darkness and the majesty of God's glory forever, just as the Scripture says. Now that is coming But don't miss verse 14, which tells us why Jesus is able to do these things, why he is seated and waiting for the day when his kingdom will be established. It is because, verse 14, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that verse links together both kinds of sanctification that we have. On the one hand, he has perfected us positionally. We are, we are righteous before God by, on the basis of, of his grace in response to uh, our faith. He has sanctified us. He has declared us righteous in his sight. And then he is also on the basis of that single offering... He is perfecting those who are being sanctified. That's our progressive sanctification. That's our our growth in our spiritual life right now. It's what we are experiencing right now. It is an increasing putting to death of sin and conformity to the character of Christ by the Holy Spirit. How did that happen? Through the sacrifice of Christ these things are be, have been and are being achieved for us. As a result of Jesus making us holy, we are right now striving to become holy in our experience. And by the Holy Spirit, we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh and practicing righteousness that we have received through Jesus' sacrifice. We are, as people in a sense, therefore living up to our baptism, right? Baptism, we symbolize the reality of the Spirit coming into our life by which we are born again and cleansed, by which we are made righteous in the sight of God. And now, as Christians, we are living up to that reality and that truth that we have experienced. 
And by the way, if you are hungry for the meat of the Word, this is it. This is one of the juiciest portions of this entire book right here. This is great stuff. That Jesus has sanctified us, is sanctifying us, and will glorify us one day when the kingdom comes. And there's one more piece of evidence that Jesus really has achieved holiness for us, and that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit Himself. That is verses 15 to 18. Look with me here. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And then what follows are two quotations of Scripture, specifically quoting Jeremiah Uh, chapter 31. And these things teach us a couple of neat truths. Number one, they teach us that the Holy Spirit is a person of God. That's not the major emphasis of these verses, but they do teach us that because the Holy Spirit speaks. Where the Word of God speaks, it is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. You want to hear the Holy Spirit's voice in your life? Open your Bible and read it. God is speaking there by His Holy Spirit to you. And he is, so He is not an energy or some, some divine uh, emanation of some kind. He is a person who speaks. But in addition to that, the major emphasis of the text is this, of on what the Holy Spirit has testified to concerning these things. And what he has told us is that one of the major promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is the forgiveness of and cleansing from sin. And that this has now occurred. That that by Jesus' death, the new covenant was initiated and inaugurated. And if the new covenant has come, then and we are recipients of it, then we have right now the holiness and forgiveness that we were promised. We have it. We possess it. If God promised forgiveness as part of the new covenant, and the new covenant is here, then so is the forgiveness that we were promised. Now look at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And what that means is this, that sacrifices remained as long as sin remained unpaid for. But once it was paid for, there was no longer a need for sacrifice. I'll give you an example. How many of you have a mortgage? Raise your hand, all right? Now, when you get to the last day the last payment of your mortgage, you will probably invite your friends and family over and you will cook hot dogs over the flames of that note. Right? I hope you do. In fact, we'll probably have ribeye at our house. (laughs) All right? Because all my life I have been indentured as a servant to the mortgage company, right? But one day, the last payment will be made, and I will be set free from slavery to those people. 
and enter into glory. Amen? <laughs> right? I will enjoy the, my new home, which I will possess finally. Right? Not borrowed, but owned. Right? In the same way, Jesus' death on the cross makes the final payment for sin. Not only the last one, but the only one that counted. He paid it off and burned the note. The debt we had incurred against God through our sin. Jesus burned the note. And there is therefore no longer any need for sacrifice because we have received forgiveness and we've been set free from the burden of our sin and the penalty of it. Amen? Well, since Christ has made us holy through His sacrifice, that carries with it some implications for us, and I want to highlight just a couple for you as we close. It means, number one, that my guilt and my shame is removed from me. I will never get tired of telling you that Christ's death has given us all a new start and a clean slate before God. I love the, the remake of the, the old movie, True Grit. I like the remake actually better than the original. I know that's heresy. But there you go. John Wayne is at the end of his career. Not his greatest movie, but True Grit is a great movie, and it tells the story of a young lady pursuing justice for her murdered father, and they finally catch up to the banditos, you know, and, uh, and they're having a conversation right before the climactic scenes, and the one guy says, I need a good judge. Not a good lawyer. I need a good judge. And we have a good judge. We have a good judge who has announced the penalty for sin, demanded that it be paid, and then sent his own son to pay it. And my guilt and my sin is removed. I have been declared righteous in the sight of God by the same God who is right now making me holy. And so therefore, I don't have to carry around guilt and shame over my past sin anymore. And that also means that God is at work in us. That he has perfected forever those who are being made holy. That since he has made us holy positionally in Christ, but he is also making us holy experientially in Christ right now, it means that we ought to exhibit and display the holiness that Christ has purchased for us. That since we are being made holy, that implies there is a process that we are right now undergoing and that that process is moving in a direction away from sin and toward holiness and Christ-likeness right now in our lives. And saved and forgiven people necessarily live out practically 
the reality that is true of them theologically. So while we are, we, while we are holy, we also need to become holy. Amen? And so there ought to be movement and there ought to be growth in your life and in mine of forsaking sin and pursuing righteousness. Amen? That we ought to put to death the deeds of the body and by, and by the Spirit and then also by the Spirit live out the reality that is already true of us. Amen? So if you have secret sin that you are feeding and nourishing, that ought not be. It needs to be choked to death and confessed and healed. And you ought to experience the freedom of the people of God. Amen. If you need help with that, see me. We'll walk you through how to do that. And we'll take as long as it takes. Months, years, however long. But we have been made holy and we are being made holy. And we walk together in holiness. Amen. It also means there are no more sacrifices that need to be made. Now, I don't just mean that in terms of animal sacrifices. I mean, we don't have an altar in here. We don't have a goat pen out back that we're going to bring anything in. We're not doing that. And so people sometimes stop there and they they think, well, yeah, obviously, okay. But then in their daily experience of their relationship with God, they want to continue to make sacrifices. And by that I mean this. They, they know that they have been declared righteous in the sight of God and all they need to do to deal with their sin now is to confess and receive cleansing again. But in the process of doing that, what they want to do is first bring God a sacrifice. And so they, they think to themselves, well, I've sinned. I've sinned surely worse than anyone in the history of, of the world. And so therefore... I need to not only confess my sins, but I also uh, need to work myself back into whatever, wherever I was before I fell into sin. And so I need to confess, and I need to walk a Girl Scout across the street, or I need to run for St. Jude, or I need to do whatever. I need to bring God a sacrifice to make myself right with God. Because surely God couldn't love me where I am because I've wandered off too far. But this passage tells us final sacrifice has been made. No more need to be offered. What needs to happen is for us to come in faith to our great high priest and confess and receive the forgiveness that is ours. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that Your holy people, those whom You have declared holy, would be walking in holiness, becoming holy in our daily experience. That by the sacrifice of Christ, we who have been set free from sin would be free from sin and would bring you glory. And then we would come to you and walk closely with you 
and the cleansing we have received. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before they sing, I just want to make a quick announcement. Today is the annual meeting, and we encourage all of you to stay and enjoy the meal and the meeting and all of that, all the aspects of that. Uh, even if you're not a member here, uh, this meeting is important. We'll talk about um, where we are as a church and the future of the church and those kinds of things. And if you consider yourself part of the church here, you need to be there and hear that. Now, only those who are members will be allowed to vote, but we encourage all of you to stay and to participate in that as part of the body of Christ here. So uh, we'll also need some uh, men to help us to set up tables and chairs and so forth. So 